Welcome to another episode of the Emulsion Podcast, a show for chefs who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and I'd love to continue the conversation with you from this episode on my online circle community. There you can share your two cents and learn about supporting the show on justinkana.com slash support. For your convenience, it's also linked up in the description of your podcast player. Let's get into the show. What is up, folks? My guest today on the podcast is Vaughn Tan. He is a strategy professor at University of College London, and he has years of experience writing about and spending time with some of the most innovative chef teams and some of the best restaurants in the world as well. I was recommended Vaughn's book, The Uncertainty Mindset, by a mutual friend, Chris Spear. You know him and you love him from the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I picked up the book, subscribed to his wonderful email newsletter almost a year ago, and I've been a huge fan ever since. I'm really excited to talk to Vaughn today about the value of R&D in the workplace, how to reframe uncertainty and anti-fragility in business. If at any point you would like to pause the conversation, check out Vaughn or the Uncertainty Mindset book, his newsletter, or any of these specific linkable things that we discuss, please do check out the show notes down low in the description of your favorite podcast player or always available on justincana.com slash media. I'm going to get out of the way. Please enjoy the conversation. So Vaughn, thank you for coming on the show. It's a real honor to have you here because I witnessed the magic that was restaurants 2008 to 2012. That's kind of like right when I entered the industry and reading your book yeah. was like going back to that time frame. And so I'm really excited to kind of do a deep dive with you on all the things that you write about and your personal pizza projects and everything that you kind of share out there on the internet. So thanks for being here. For sure. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I guess as we're thinking about uncertainty in our lives, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the fact that in the book you acknowledge this kind of psychological element that goes with uncertainty. And I think chefs that err more towards that kind of like more macho end of the spectrum where I don't talk about my feelings could really benefit from hearing you share some of the stories that you share. And so to avoid plugging the book too much, could you sp speak a bit on being realistic versus being pessimistic? Because I find that it's a fine yeah. line to push with that negativity yeah. being on the pessimistic side of things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, the difference between being realistic and pessimistic is that if you're a pessimistic, you are overstating how bad things could be. And if you're realistic, what you're doing is you're just stating how bad, based on current evidence, things could be, right? Um, so to give a, an example of what's going on with coronavirus right now, I think if you're in the U.S., just looking at the data about how many people are getting vaccinated, it, you know, it could be that things don't go back to normal for many, many, many months. But right now, it would actually be realistic to say that things are going to begin to go back to normal within a few months. Whereas that would not be realistic to say in, say, France, right, or uh, or India or places like that. So I think just trying to be very realistic in the sense of looking at what is on the ground, what can you see that you have evidence for, um, that's how you prevent yourself from overstating how bad things could be, which is being pessimistic, or being unrealistically optimistic, which is to misinterpret how good things could be as well. Did you ever think that a year like 2020 would come along being an author of someone who writes about uncertainty? <laughs> Could you have asked for a better marketing pitch for your book? 
Uh, it's a great question. Um, no, I, I, I mean, like everyone else, I think in December 2019, none of us would have imagined outside of maybe a couple of places in China with very specific knowledge that anything like this would have happened. Um, and then suddenly it did, right? And I think, you know, it sounds like it would be a good time to publish a book on uncertainty. But I think actually it's been... It would have been much better to publish a book about uncertainty and restaurants at a time which was not everyone stuck in a pandemic. Um, I think there have been lots and lots of people who are studying what's happening to the publishing industry. And I think in general, something like coronavirus makes well-established names that are already famous, they become the focus of more attention. And then people who are just not as well-known uh, are not as not as attended to, I guess. So I would have preferred it in a different way, but it's what happened. So I mean, just deal with it. Even you kind of approach, from what I noticed, like approach your, your writing and your kind of work, like you, you, you really dug into the newsletter a bit, right? When pandemic kind of started. And so mm -hmm. it was almost like, I mean, you could have done a realistic, like gone on all the podcast on a huge media push tour for your book, but you almost kind of like innovated yourself in a, in a bit there. Um, Possibly. I think what I did was I, I was trying I was trying to figure out another way to like talk about some of the ideas that were in the book. And I I think for a lot of last year, um, it seemed much more useful to talk about how to think about uncertainty in the context of what all of us were facing rather than, you know, like restaurants, right? Because most of the most of the world, restaurants were just not open. So I, I didn't I didn't feel comfortable doing the normal thing. I probably wouldn't have been very good at doing the normal thing. And I wanted to try this other thing and don't know how that worked yet, but we'll see. I want to kind of tailor some of these questions to specific industry people. And I'm, I'm this is like me writing questions for friends of mine, almost uh, kind of getting that audience yeah. of one in mind. And so have you ever had to watch someone convince either their business partner or a team member that they were going to mm -hmm. contribute resources towards something that could be considered uncertain because I've, I've heard your comparison between risk and uncertainty, but I'm curious if yeah. you have any stories here, if you can hopefully speak to some examples like case study wise. Yeah. So if I understand the question correctly, it's like, uh, who has ever managed to convince someone to put some time or effort or money or something into something that isn't just risky, but actually is truly uncertain. Correct. And I mean, the answer is, uh, I mean, the answer is actually really easy to, like there are hundreds of examples of this, right? Like any startup where you convince your co-founder to join with you in an untested market to build an unknown product where there is no known product market fit, uh, that is a classic example of an uncertain situation. And that's not just for tech, right? It's not just, oh, come join me as I build uh, a ride-hailing app that connects people with cars, with people who want like rides. It's not just that. I mean, if you decide you want to open the very first fermentation restaurant in, I don't know, name your town, and there is no clear sense that the people there want to pay a premium for this stuff, uh, and you manage to convince someone to invest money in your business, 
or you've managed to convince your friend to tr to like relocate from across the country to come work in your business, you have just done exactly what you're asking. And uh, I mean, as people who work in the restaurant business, you know that this happens all the time, right? Like you have an idea to start a new restaurant. The new restaurant isn't just going to be like what everybody else is doing. You want to do something that's different. You want to do something that's better, but nobody's ever done it before. That's uncertainty. And you don't know whether, you don't know the percentage that it will work. You don't know how likely it is that you will even make your money back. And yet you have to convince yourself to do it. Then you have to convince your investors to let you do it. Then you have to convince people to come work for you or be partners with you. And then you have to convince customers to come in and trust their experience of the night or whatever to your capacity to deliver, right? And I think that's all uncertainty. It's not all uncertainty, but all of it is uncertainty and all of it will have a bit of risk where you know the probability of this going wrong or not. And that's the risk part of it. But a lot of it is going to be uncertain as well. So if I have to pull back the curtain on who that question is for, it's it's potentially the, the person who is just starting and thinks that when they approach a restaurant that has quote unquote made it or quote unquote has a reputation or some sort of you know set of accolades behind them, it's been this process yeah. of like everybody's on the same page. They knew exactly what they were doing from the jump. Uh, everybody was bought in. Uh, but I think what you're sharing here is that there's an incredible amount of it's a it's a dance, right? It's a dance of negotiation. Yeah. It's a dance of convincing. It's a dance of communication. Um, and then there's almost yeah. like this courage or fearlessness also that gets added in into that as well. The, um, I, I think that's super insightful and it's totally on point because I think this isn't just for restaurants. I think whenever we look at something that's very successful, especially when it's very successful, there is almost no way that you can avoid thinking that this was successful and it was this way from the very beginning, right? So you see this very successful thing, whether it's a book, a restaurant, a company, a person's career, and you think they must have figured it out at the very beginning. Otherwise, how could they possibly have gotten there? And I think that's a really, really big mistake because if you go talk to anyone about where they actually started, chances are very high that they probably did not start anywhere close to where they ended up. And it's the fact that they were able to keep, you know, the term in tech is pivoting. Right. They were pivoting, but not just pivoting crazily. They were pivoting and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And eventually they stuck with it long enough and were lucky. They got to the point where they were successful. And that's what you end up seeing. Right. So and, there's a lot of success bias that's going on. And survivorship bias, right? Like you don't hear about the ones that didn't Absolutely. survive, right? Yeah. For, so, uh, so 100%. I, that, that's why we look at, you know, unicorns in the valley, like, you know, the tech unicorns in the valley. And we think, oh, we must do that kind of startup because you don't see the literally thousands of startups that tried to do that but failed. You share that innovation within a distinct style matters. Mm-hmm. Can you expand a little bit on that? And, and I'll, I'll share a quote if it, if it helps tee it up a little bit. Quote, new dishes or experiences that nonetheless feel familiar in ways that are unique to that restaurant. End quote. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I, so I, I love this idea because my favorite restaurants, as well as my favorite producers of things, writers, filmmakers, musicians, they're all doing that, right? So if you, I mean, if you're a chef, and you go to a restaurant and the food that you're eating at that restaurant literally is indistinguishable from what another restaurant would produce. It doesn't mean that the food is bad. It just means that nobody can distinguish that producer from another producer. Whereas if you think about 
I mean, I'll just use an example for, you know, some place that I know pretty well. Um, if you go to Noma and you sit down and you look at a plate, right? Even looking at a plate, if you know Noma a little bit well, you kind of know that it is a Noma dish. Um, once you add in the experience of being there, you definitely know it. you're at Noma. It, it is not really mistakable for any other place. And I think what's really powerful about this idea of familiar innovation is that people want new things and they, they because they get tired of old stuff, right? So they want new things, but they don't just want something that is new. They want something that is both new and gives them something that they expect. And that's the reason why if you like a particular director, every single new movie that they come out with, you will go watch. If you like a particular author, every new book that they come out with, you will go buy, even if you've never read it before. It's the combination of knowing what to expect and getting something new nonetheless that makes you want to pay a premium for that. And I think if you're in the restaurant business, that's a huge advantage, right? If you've got customers who come to you again and again because of something that they know they will get, but they are also willing to come back again and again because every time they come back, they get something new. You've got like a, I mean, that's a really powerful combination. And if you think about companies that are incredibly successful, like Apple, for instance, that's what they do. They don't just make the same product over and over again, nor do they make brand new products that feel nothing like Apple products. What they do is they make new products that feel like Apple products. And that's why people come back. And that's why they pay so much more than really they should be paying for an Apple product, right? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a powerful idea that we don't really think about consciously very much, although all of the best chefs actually do think about it. I think, so pulling back the curtain on this one, I think this this question goes out to the person who is potentially thinking that innovating and in R&D and just constantly trying to find some new flashy trick is going to be the yeah. solution that makes them top 10 all time, whatever. This is going to put my restaurant on the map. I think what you're saying is right. that there's almost this element of like, define your style, then yeah. innovate on top of that. Like that's the foundation. Is that the yeah. right analogy? I, I style is foundational or is there a better analogy maybe? No, I, I think style is, well, style is foundational in the sense that you can always make new things if you're good at making new things. But if you want to make new things that are always also familiar, then you have to have a style, right? And I think one good way of thinking about what style is, is it's not just sort of, we will do X. It's actually more about things that you're not willing to do, that you're willing to give up, right? So if you talk to very creative people who have a style, I think one of the things that they will almost always tell you, in fact, at the moment, I don't know of any person that I've spoken to about style that would say different, what they'll always tell you is a style is as much what I choose to do as it is what I have chosen very consciously to not do, right? So I think what this, what this is, is it basically sets you um, like, you know, like the idea of like guardrails, Yeah. like you're yeah. driving really quickly down a road. And if there were no guardrails, you might just go off into some other you know, environment where you don't know what's going on. The guardrails are really there so that you can explore what's inside the guardrails in a lot more detail and come up with new things there. And so I also want to just say that my belief is that style, like a distinctive style anyway, is not just about like what's on the plate. It can be also something like a decision to only source from responsibly produced, um, from responsible producers of food. Right. And what that does is it limits you from using some kinds of ingredients 
And when you're limited in that way, the way you come up with new dishes is you have to work inside your constraints. And the kinds of things you come up with, because you have put in some clear guardrails for yourself, will look very different from what somebody else without those guardrails comes up with. So I think style, style is something that, again, even, even someone who's a very good home cook has a style. Right. Like the best home cooks ever have incredibly distinctive styles. Like I can, you know, my grandma is an amazing cook. And I can tell when she's cooking something because she would simply never do a lot of stuff. And what she does do is very, very distinctive because of all the things that she has chosen not to do, right? So you can be distinctively stylish, I guess, and not even be a super fancy chef. You can be anyone and have a style. And that could be quite useful. So hopefully this is, for folks listening, there's a there's a meme that goes around, Vaughn, in the, in the industry of like everything that... The the first question that anybody outside of food asks you as a chef is like, what's your specialty? And it's like the worst question for people to get asked because it's like, Correct. oh, well, I don't have – because people think that it has to come down to talking about a singular dish or I cook northern Italian cuisine, whatever. And I think what I might propose to folks as, as an exercise is what if you had to answer that from what Vaughn and I just kind of spoke about from the sense of like your style of how you kind of like think about food – could that be a really creative exercise where it helps you make decisions down the road? Because maybe you're starting from this place of um, what Tim Ferriss calls like a do not do list. Like this is what I don't do. And then that helps influence your style. Uh, I, I would absolutely agree that that is, I, I won't say that that's the only correct way to think about it, but that is definitely what I think is one of the correct ways to think about it. Um, it, it also is very, very damaging to think about style only as, the physical product that is on the plate, right? It's much, much more empowering. And also it gives you a lot more freedom to think about new things. If you can think about all the possible things that you might be producing, the food on a plate, the experience of multiple plates together, how you interact with the client, the way you set up the hospitality experience, all of those things are, they're, they're places where you can have style. And if you look at the most successful restaurants of the last, I don't know, forever, they are the ones that innovate and are stylish in all of those places and some that you cannot even imagine yet. They're, then they're really innovating, right? And so thinking very broadly about what style is uh, allows you to be more innovative, not less. I had a question about chefs and how they, I mean, you lived this whole era of, you know, being able to share ideas at the drop of a hat, like a, a week later after a restaurant posts a dish, you see that across yes. the world on somebody else's menu. Correct. I'm curious if you've thought about or what you have to say on the, the fact that chefs aren't copying things more outside of just flavor combinations or menu structures. When I'm saying things like um, something gets proven as a very clearly easy way to manage reservations or to price menus or to hire people or to get mm. you know benefits for your employees – I find that chefs yeah. aren't as keen to copy, quote unquote, those things, even if even though the, the data says that it, it works, uh, it causes, yeah. you know, all these great ripple effects. But it yeah. seems like chefs aren't so keen on copying those things. Like, why? Why is that, I suppose? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I wonder the same thing. Right. Yeah. So I think if we think about innovation as something that generally if you show that a thing is good. In theory, everyone should want to do the good thing as well. But it does seem like, in food at least, 
the thing that gets copied as the good thing is often a dish. So you see dish copying a lot. You will sometimes also see method copying or ingredient copying or flavor combination copying. I think where it gets harder to copy is when it's harder to see the thing that is copied and all you see is the result, right? So for instance, if what you see is you see uh, a restaurant like Alinea that says, in lockdown, we managed to replace our dine-in revenue with more than the same amount of revenue from takeaway. What you see is you see the result and you're like, holy shit, I want to do that. Uh, you don't understand that the way they did it was they obviously had the benefit of having built talk and thought about customer relationship management from the ground up with people that had come up with the service and the product itself. They had obviously a very highly trained team that was also used to thinking in this way. They had people who were integrating all those all those things together. I think if you want to copy something like a business model innovation or even a process innovation, you have to be able to see the whole thing that you want to copy before you are able to copy it. So it's it's in a way, I think it's harder than just saying, oh, you know what? Vanilla and lobster, what a great idea. I'm just going to do that. Because right. all you need to know is that vanilla and lobster work together. But if you want to copy like a process innovation or like a business model innovation, you need to be inside and embedded in the place that did the thing enough to understand what the thing is before you can bring it to your own place, right? Right. And I think that's why maybe the time scale of copying for this kind of thing is slower because what normally happens is the people who work at one of these places that innovates in process or business model will learn it because they grew up in that space. And then when they go off to start their own restaurant, their own business, they will maybe bring the same idea across. And I think you see you see that happening. Um, I'm willing to bet that, that if you worked in the sort of linear group of restaurants and you, you work there for a few years, when you go off to do your own thing, chances are very high that you will be more likely to do something that would be something like what a linear group would do than if you had come from, I don't know, a place that was not like the Alinea group, right? Right. Yeah. It's like this generational inherited yeah. habits and practices. and um, Absolutely. It's like mental models, like the way that you think about solving problems comes from where you, yeah. you know, were shown how to. And, and I'm happy to see it. I'm happy to see us talking about it in this positive light because it happens negatively as well from the sense of like, mm -hmm. I could feel it when I first got my first management role. And I had to discipline someone, I could feel myself falling into the rut that was like, oh, I have to scream at this person because that's how I got disciplined. And like breaking oh, yeah. that cycle, you know what I mean, is like the the, the yeah. thing that's going to have to change things going forward. Um, yeah. I want to talk about consistency a little bit. You have this quote that says, sure. quote, consistency is essential for a restaurant to win repeat custom. Efficiency is essential for it to survive. So consistency and efficiency. Yeah. Innovation foils yeah. attempts to be consistent and efficient. Every new dish introduced means the kitchen has to relearn how to be consistent and efficient at best. End quote. Oh yeah. <laughs> so how do we protect I mean, ourselves, Vaughn? Like how do we how do we do this? This is such a dance. This is so hard. It it, it is such a dance. I I think it's going to be a bit of a weird um, statement to make for someone who thinks about this a lot. But I actually think that most restaurants should not be mostly about innovation. So Expand I, I mean, as a, as a chef, you, you know that that statement that you just read out is completely correct, right? Like the way you become consistent and efficient is by doing the same thing again and again. 
the moment you give someone something new to do, they have to learn how to do it. And when you're learning something, you can never be either consistent nor can you be efficient. So I think where, where we are, not necessarily today, but where we were just before the pandemic hit was we were at this time in fine dining, at least, and even beyond that, where it almost was impossible to be seen as an ambitious restaurant if you were not coming up with a new dish like every week or something, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what that did was it created a lot of restaurants that are just not very, they're neither consistent nor efficient. And so they didn't make very much money because they were constantly trying to like do something brand new. Um, it's not just restaurants. I think you see the same thing happening in a lot of industries as well. Like fashion is one of them. Music to some extent is one of them. Newspapers and media, also one of them. Um, I sort of think that especially for restaurants, you know, like as a consumer, I'm primarily an eater of food at restaurants. I, I cook a lot at home, but I'm, I'm an eater of food at restaurants. I sort of think that focusing a lot on innovation, almost to the exclusion of all else, takes away something very fundamental about what a restaurant is and how a guest interacts with the restaurant, right? Like the best kinds of restaurant experiences are not the ones where you travel to like a destination restaurant to have like a kind of almost like a theatrical experience. Those are interesting, but those are not the ones that genuinely stay with you as a hospitality experience. The best hospitality experiences in restaurants are the ones where you have an ongoing relationship with the restaurant. You go back there regularly. You know them, they know you. And the food doesn't change in a revolutionary sense like every week or two weeks. You don't have a brand new thing that gives you a completely unknown experience that has never been seen on this planet before. What you have is you've got an experience of dining where things are evolving slowly so that you, you're never eating exactly the same thing, but you're always seeing that connectivity uh, from what came before and the connection to what comes after. And it's not just that I think this model is better for the guest. That's also a model that you can use to achieve both consistency and efficiency, right? So I think what do you do to be consistent and efficient and therefore be able to like deliver and make money while still satisfying your guests? I would say, I don't know, like be ambitious in a different way. Don't try and be ambitious just by coming up with new dishes all the time. Try and be ambitious by thinking about what it would mean to run a restaurant where people are willing to come back every week, where you actually know them, right? And then they know you. And then that also, I mean, because you, you've worked in this space. I, I mean, I've been on the floor as well. Uh, the nice thing about having regulars is that when you're having a bad night, it's okay, actually. Like, you don't have to be perfect every single night. Like, people cut you some slack because sometimes you cut them slack too, right? That's really... And that's something that goes away a lot if you're a destination restaurant where your guests may only come to you once in their entire lives. If they come back, it'll be every year or something. You just don't have the same relationship. My friend Max calls this guest-driven concepts versus chef-driven concepts. And everybody thinks that, oh, in order to be have a competitive advantage or kind of like, you know, be the yeah. hot place in town that has, you know, this... Um, individual creative force in the restaurant that makes us stand out from everybody else we have to have the most we have to be a chef driven restaurant it has to be all about like how we're kind of like like you're saying constantly changing the menu all the time but i think yeah. what i'm hearing you say is that there's like almost this it's the balance on the other side of the scale that makes you more grounded when you're thinking about like yeah. how can i make this a consistent guest exp a consistent guest experience and a consistent working environment for my staff that ultimately becomes more efficient. And then that might also be a road to profitability, again, to the people who are yes. talking about kind of like 
oh man, this is exhausting having to change the menu every week. Yeah, you know? for sure. It's exhausting. And I think in the end, it's also not very enjoyable because, you know, you need a balance between learning new stuff, which is, which is fun and being able to do stuff well, which is satisfying, right? Like the two of them need to go together. And I, I just wanted to say one thing about the diff, about guest driven versus chef driven. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. Sure. Like you should definitely have guest driven restaurants that are also chef driven. Like there's, yep. I, I'm, I'm definitely not proposing that you have a guest driven restaurant where the food is indistinguishable from any other restaurant. In fact, the best, my favorite restaurants are, I mean, in this framing, my favorite restaurants are definitely guest driven, but you can definitely go there and the, the chef has a really distinct point of view that is implemented in the food. And we go back both for the experience of being there and for the food that you get when you are there. And it's both at the same time. The best restaurants are both guest and chef driven, not one or the other, I think. The the analogy that will hopefully speak to the, the chefs that are listening is when you do a presentation where the guest has to interact with the presentation, you're asking them to build something, you're asking them to season something. Yeah. Giving them free reign and all the mise en place in the world and all the garnishes and unlimited quantities is the worst way to do it. And from, from my experience, the best way to do that is give them a little bowl with the exact amount of emulsion that they need and the exact amount of herb garnish and the exact amount of whatever. Have them have fun putting everything together and mixing it. And it's seasoned in the way that is, again, chef driven. It's a guest driven presentation, yep. chef driven kind of like seasoning and like yeah. relying on that expertise that at least that's how I think about it. Cool. Um, you spoke a little bit about, and I've heard this in previous interviews you've done and you kind of brought it up there in the last kind of section there, like media, just media in general food, like food writing and your frustration with how kind of like food writing is these days. And I don't, I'm not asking you to call anybody out, but kind of like, I feel the frustration as well. So kind of like, what's up with food writing these days? Oh, gosh. What's up with food writing these days? <laughs> um, so I think, well, one thing I will say is it used to be that people who wrote about food were doing it not because it was cool, but because they loved the food and knew a lot about it. And they did it in spite of the fact that it was not cool. It was kind of a career killer, right? And I think what that did was it actually made both the content that they were writing about better because they really, really knew their stuff and they were incredibly good writers. And the big problem with food writing today, and I'm not saying that this uniformly afflicts all food writing because there are exceptions, obviously, but now that food writing is fun and cool and people love to read it, I think people are doing it because it is a cool thing to do because you can get paid a, a tiny, tiny amount of money for it. Um, and as a result, what you get is you get food writing by people who are not very good writers who don't know very much about the food, right? And the big problem with food writing is that all of that noise is drowning out the always very small amount of signal that there, that there's always only a small amount of signal in any kind of media. And then the more popular or trendy or cool the media becomes, the more noise there is. And now food writing is basically all noise. Right. It's really, really hard to find new writing about food that is good in content and it's good writing. And that's the that's the big problem. Totally. Right. And of course, I could go into more incendiary topics about why it's problematic, but that's the that's genuinely the biggest problem with food writing. I'm a big proponent of 
chefs learning how to communicate their ideas better because whether that's through writing or through, you know, getting better at leaving voice memos on their phone, because being able to talk through your ideas allows you not to just better teach your team how to produce this idea that's coming out of your brain, but also potentially talk to guests. And they're the ones that are either going to write about you. I just have this funny kind of like flip flipping thing that happens where if you as the chef aren't able to communicate your ideas, you are by almost by nature outsourcing that to someone else who will write about you in whatever way that they're perceiving it. Do you know what I mean? And so yes. giving that, giving chefs the tools to be able to do that is something that I'm really, I mean, have you, have you seen any resources that are helpful for chefs to either get better about talking about food or, you know, practices that you've seen in, in your experience of how teams, I guess, maybe communicate ideas amongst each other? Yeah. Um, by the way, I, I just want to say, I agree that being able to talk about what you're doing is an incredibly important thing, not only in expressing what it is that you're doing to the person who's consuming it, which is the guest, but also in making sure that, or not making sure, making it more likely that people who look at what you're doing come away with the correct idea about it, right? So if you think about the most successful chefs, the ones who become famous, whose restaurants become successful, they are usually the ones who are both good cooks and the ones who are really good at talking about what it is that they're trying to produce in the restaurant as a guest experience and as a food experience. So what is it that um, lets someone be a good communicator? I think the first thing is uh, being honest about what it is that you're trying to communicate. Like, I I think this isn't just a problem for chefs, it's a problem for everyone, and I include myself in that, (laughs) is that most of the time we do things sort of instinctively without thinking about why we're doing it. Right. And it's only when you're thinking about your motivations for doing it, what you're willing to give up to do it, what you're really trying to achieve. It's when you are clear about that yourself that you can then communicate it clearly to someone else, right? And so I think one of the things that I've noticed inside teams that are very good is that a large part of becoming good at working in one of these organizations, it's a restaurant, by the way, um, is that a lot of the work is talking about why you did something, what you were trying to achieve with that, And why you think it's important. Those three things, right? So what did you do? Why did you do it? And was it successful? And if you can train people, because this is just how things normally are, to do those three things all the time, when they actually become chefs that run their own restaurants, and they're not just doing it because this is what the boss or the head chef is trying to get them to do, they're doing it by default, right? And I'll I'll kind of make it more concrete. Like, let's say you're in a team of R&D chefs and you're trying to develop a new menu for a restaurant that is opening soon. Normally, what you might imagine is you give everyone like a dish to work on. They work on the dish. And then if everyone is amazing, at the end of it, you've got like 12 dishes or 15 dishes. And then that's the opening menu. I mean, it it never actually works like that. But that's one possibility. Um, what these guys do, and this, by the way, is Jose Andres' Think Food Group. What right. they do is they've got a small team of people, and everybody is responsible for one dish. But they are meeting constantly, like many times a day, and they're tasting with each other, right? Which I think happens a lot as well. The difference between what normally happens in other places and what they do is that when they taste, they're not just tasting and saying, oh, yeah, that's good or bad. This is how you should change it. Before anyone says anything, usually what happens is the person who made that dish has to explain, what was I trying to do with this? How did I do it? 
do I think it's successful and why? And then not only can you as the other person in the team say, yeah, it tastes good, doesn't taste good. You can then also, in a sense, talk about the meta context, right? Like, are you doing it for the right reason? Did you use the method that would make sense for who we are as a restaurant? And you thought it was successful, but actually it was unsuccessful for this other way that you didn't think about because you don't know, but now we're talking about it, you do find out. And I think what that does is it teaches people how to think not just about the thing that they're doing, but the context, right? And that's exactly what you're talking about with communication. Not, not just here, have this plate, it's delicious. It's like, have this plate, all the ingredients on there are on there because I've worked with the grower. I work with this grower because he or she is local to me and they're farming in this particular way. I cook in this way because of my hair. I mean, all these things are not the food on the plate. They're the reason why the food on the plate is there and was cooked the way it was and why you think it works. And being, I guess, used to talking about that to people is the only way you learn how to do it well. If you never have to do it at all, like it's no surprise that you're not good at it, right? I think another thing you touched on there, and maybe you can speak to if there's a if there's a sweet spot for this, but it's almost like the you're getting extra iterations in by doing this throughout your workday. And I, I think that there might be people who can empathize with the fact that, you know, you, you make a dish, you launch it on the menu on a Tuesday, and you don't talk it about you don't talk about the menu again until the next Tuesday. You just run it all week. You happened to have yeah. cabbage that came in from the purveyor and you need to use up that cabbage. This is the dish we're gonna run. And you don't actually talk about it again or go over guest feedback or whatever because it's such a it would be such a disruption if we had to change something because the chef de partie knows how to make the sauce for it and the grilling thing yeah. that we're doing is exactly how we're going to do whatever. And so by the time you get to next Tuesday, that's when we can actually kind of like pause and talk about it. But I think you're sharing that do it, taste it, talk about it, iterate. Like if yeah. you can have four cycles of that happen in that work week versus just the one, how like, yeah. Absolutely. So is there a sweet spot yeah, there, sure. I guess? Um because obviously I, you don't want people yeah, to just I, be constantly like mulling over, like looking at this plate and tasting things. Yeah, like there's, yeah. there's a point when it could potentially be harmful, but. Yes. Um, I, I totally agree that there is definitely a point where it could be harmful. Um, the one thing I want to say about this sort of, you know, constantly talking about stuff approach is that I'm not suggesting at all that you you know, every time you want to do this, you have to cart, you have to like make a calendar entry, all of you get together and right. sit and talk about it. We're actually really talking about just, you're at the pass, you're tasting the thing and you're like, you know what? This is interesting. Tell me why you did it. It takes 30 seconds. It's like, the, I think the idea is always be talking about why you're doing something, what you hope to achieve with it and whether you thought it was successful. Sometimes it can be very formal, but most of the time, the vast majority of the time, 98, 99% of the time, it's just, you know, you and someone else and it takes a few seconds. And the key is not to say, don't do that because that actually already happens now. It's that do it in a way that helps not only the person who is talking learn, but also helps the person who is listening and responding help that person learn as well as maybe learn something himself or herself as well. Um, and so I think the balance is not to do more or less of it. It's to do as much of it as you can in the course of doing something else anyway. A thing that I kind of share 
as I'm talk as as I get questions from people who are like, hey, I'm writing my menu for my pop up, or hey, I just got asked to run a special. Um, chef asked me to do X Y Z thing at the restaurant. I share that you should write three versions of the menu or the dish. Mm-hmm. One is how it's going to get printed on the menu if it gets printed. Mm-hmm. Two is how you talk about it with the team, and three mm-hmm. is how you would pitch it to the guest. Because it's almost like there's, yeah. it's like there's three kind of versions, and that that's helped me a lot talk through menus because yeah. you don't want to be the person that goes to the table and gives a ninety second spiel on the dish, and by the time you're done, it's kind of like you've gone through all your philosophy and all the iterations and all the purveyors yeah. and all the whatever, and by the time the guest eats For it sure. because they don't want to interrupt you, the food is cold. So it's almost like the, yeah. um, when bloggers talk about like the the most distilled, like can you put it in a tweet, is kind of like the the yeah. equivalent of writing the nugget. Yeah, the nugget. Yeah. Um, no, I, absolutely. I think the, the this idea of writing three versions of the menu, you know, one for like one for the team, one for the guest, one for yourself or whoever it is. I think that's important to think about from the context of uh, thinking about what every audience needs to hear about whatever thing it is that you're doing. But before even you do that, the nugget is actually understanding your own motivations for doing something why you chose to do it that particular way, which is different from what you're trying to do, right? There's the what you're doing, there's the how you plan to do it, and then there is the whether or not you thought it was successful. Now, if you can explain that to yourself, then writing those three versions or four or five versions of how you present it to other audiences becomes, I mean, not easy, but it's not hard anymore, right? Once you know those three things and are clear about it to yourself, writing about what this dish is for the guest in like five, 10 seconds is not hard. It's only when you don't know those three things that writing all of those things is impossible. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. That's a really good prerequisite for that. There, (laughs) I'm, I'm calling it the, the five stages of failure from the same way of like the five, the five stages of, you know, depression or whatever. And you talk about denial admission, accepting and using it as a tool. So there's technically only four, but can you talk a little bit about failure and how, people who because it's a part of this process right if you're thinking about innovating you're thinking about uncertainty you're thinking about taking risks and trying things yeah there's an element of failure in there so how can people either seek out tools to better cope with that or use it as something where it's like if you're going to step out of your comfort zone dude it's going to come with a little bit of this failure thing so how can you how can you share a little bit about that uh yeah i i would love to because i mean i think about a lot right now um personally anyway i think the the one thing that you said which i completely agree with is that if you are trying to do something new by definition you won't know what that thing is until you've done it and you won't know how to do it until you've actually done it right so there is no way to get around the fact that there will be failure if you're trying to do something new if you don't want to fail, all you have to do is just do the same thing that you already know how to do again and again. If you're okay with that, then you don't have to expose yourself to failure very much. But if you do want to do something new and you're ambitious in that direction, then you just have to own the fact that failure is part of that. But I think maybe to answer your question directly, uh, the useful thing to think about is you don't always have to fail in super big ways. right? You can You can learn really well by failing in very small ways as well. And what I would probably propose is like a set of tools, right? The first tool is how do I design something so that even if it doesn't succeed, I still learn. It's definitely possible to do this. Um, an example of this might be 
you know, you're trying to make a new kind of fermented thing that nobody's ever done before. Like you're trying to use Koji for the first time. Like all like Koji is currently like such a big deal. But if you think back 10 years ago, the only people who use Koji were in Japan, right? And they've been using it for like generations. Um, now everybody's doing it because some people decided, okay, you know what? We, we're probably not going to figure this out the first or even the 10th time, but we're going to try. And in the course of failing each time, like I want to make fish sauce. I'm going to Koji it doesn't work. You do it 10 times and each time you fail, you realize, okay, that way didn't work, but maybe I'll try something different the next time. You're failing, but you're learning, right? So the first thing is design all the experiments so that even if you fail, you still learn. The second thing is when you fail, and this is something I end up having to do myself a lot as well. When you fail, actually sit back and think, how bad was it to have failed? Usually what happens is it's the thought of having failed or the fear of failing, even if you haven't done it yet, that is much worse than the actual failing itself, right? When you realize that failing is actually, in most cases, not so bad. In fact, you often forget about it completely by the next day or the next week, and you actually think about it consciously, the next time you are doing something that might fail, it's less of a concern. And then I think the third thing is um, between things that are so difficult that you might fail, because what you'll end up doing as a chef or really anyone trying to do something new is you'll be doing something where you don't know how to do it. You might fail with great effort. You get through it. Maybe you failed. Maybe you didn't fail. Make sure you take time to rest, right? Because you, you talked about this emotional um psychological aspect of failure and uncertainty. I think it's actually a really big thing. Huge. Uh, I'm not a very touchy-feely emotional person myself. I just know that it's exhausting to do things that you don't know how to do. And if what you do is you insist on doing them again and again and again, and you don't give yourself time to recover, the next time you try and do something that's really hard, that is uncertain, that might fail, you're going to be less good at doing it. So... The, the key is it's a lot like if you're doing resistance training or weight training, you do not go to exhaustion and then immediately up like whatever weight it is that you're doing. You always go to exhaustion, rest, recover, and then up it. And then once you've gotten to that point, rest, recover, up it again. And I don't know why we understand that so instinctively for things that we do in the physical world and we don't understand it for things that we do in our kind of emotional or work world but it's exactly the same thing yeah you talk about the progressive overload in the book and it's as someone yeah. who's kind of gone on this big like health fitness weight loss weight not weight loss but like weight lifting like that's the most yeah. if you have time on your side that's the most bulletproof I w i'll call it way to kind of like see progress and I guess yeah, the thing that I'm adding, there's really yeah. no other way. Yeah, correct. Correct. I mean, the other yeah. way, the other way is, is like, you know, you're, you're looking at injury, right? Totally. Totally. The risk is yeah. so much higher. Uh, so like why add the risk to the already, it's almost like you're adding this underlying, like, um, it's like, a, it's not an insurance policy, but it's like a, it's like a catch for if failure happens. It's like, you're, it's such a small thing. And this is hopefully, yes. oh, this is the guy who talks all about uncertainty and taking risks and stuff. I, 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 I can't afford to do this kind of like big catastrophic thing. And that's not what Vaughn is saying, right? Like these little ones. Totally not. These little ones. Tiny. Small ones. So the, the three things are start small, right? Make sure that everything that you do. So start small with experiments that you aren't sure whether or not they'll succeed. 
make sure that when you're planning that experiment, you are designing it so that even if it doesn't succeed, you still learn, so you still benefit, and then progressively overload, right? So gradually step up. Don't just try and do something really big at the start. Do something small, get comfortable with it, get bigger. Do it small again, and then keep getting bigger along the way. And so absolutely, you're totally right. No one, I think neither of us is suggesting, just go take the massive uncertainty risk, whatever, and fail and it's it's a catastrophe. That is absolutely not it. Like do something small so that even if you do fail, you still benefit and it didn't kill you. I have a an a very engaged member of my community who is working in R and D right now, and he presented a ton of great questions for you. But I'm gonna I'm gonna pick two and and ask them before we go into some rapid fire ones. So Jordan asks, "Do you have any techniques on learning how to be comfortable in uncomfortable learning opportunities? I find that it's easy to get flustered or discombobulated when you're pushing something unknown." It's almost as if your brain wants to make you stop pursuing the unknown and stick to a comfortable routine instead. How can someone effectively learn how to work around this gut feeling? Uh, yeah, no, I, it, it's, a, it's a really good question, and I don't think it ever goes away completely. I think a few things that I've found that help me and seem to help other people when, they, when I've seen them do it is that when I'm about to do something that I don't know how to do, I tell everyone that I'm doing that. Right, because the one of the one of the obstacles to doing something that you don't know how to do is that you expect everyone else to expect you to know how to do it. Whereas if you bet if you baseline it properly for your other people, it's easier to just not succeed because they know that you're doing something that you don't know how to do yet. The other thing is, what I found is when I tell other people that I don't know how to do something, often I get help. Right, because usually people don't offer help because they think you don't need it. And that they think it's, it'll be patronizing if they offer to help you. But if you tell them, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm about to do something. I don't know exactly how to do it. I hope it works. What you're doing is you're making it okay for people to help you. And that's really useful. Um, the third thing about this kind of gut feeling of not wanting to do this thing that you don't know how to do is it genuinely becomes easier the more you do it. Right. So if what you do is you, your gut tells you don't do this thing that you don't know how to do and you listen to your gut. The next time you do some, the next time you do anything that's even a bit uncertain, you will have exactly the same feeling. But if you do what we were talking about before, and you try this thing out, and you realize even if you fail, it's still not so bad. The next time you confront something that is also uncertain, you're like, you know what? It's kind of uncomfortable, but I'm just gonna do it. Because um, your brain has I, this I'm gonna, example. I'm plug something. Yeah. What's that? I said your brain has this counter example, right? So it's like. Last time when I felt uncertain and I did something, it it wasn't so bad. And so it's like a vote against, do you know what I mean? Like this gut, yeah. this gut check. Yeah. And, and I think the more you do that, uh, the more likely it is that at some point you'll realize also that when you did something that you didn't know how to do, you know, when you actually went into uncertainty, most of the time you'll fail. But every so often, if you do it enough, you won't fail. And then that feeling will be amazing. And then you've got not only the counterexample that you pointed to that says, oh, you know, gut, you're afraid that it's going to be really bad, but in the past it wasn't so bad. Then you'll have another weapon, which is gut, you're really afraid that it'll be really bad. But actually, not only was it not really bad in the past, there were also some times when it was really good. Sure. And then that's the kind of positive, so that there's going to be a negative reinforcement, right, right, against the gut. And that's important. What you also really want is you want the positive reinforcement because I, I'm actually 100% positive that 
almost every person is like this. We actually love to learn. Mm. We love learning how to do something new. It's just we get tired of all the other shit that you have to do in order to learn new stuff. But when we're just learning something new, we love it, right? And when we learn how to do something and we learn how to do it well, it's one of the best feelings ever. So you only get to learn new things if you do things you don't know how to do. And well, it's that positive reinforcement loop that I think is a really important thing to put yourself into again and again. And that will gradually like not get rid of, but will give you tools to fight against um, that kind of gut reaction that it's a bad thing. Absolutely. What were you going to show me? Um, I actually have a tool which I've been working on for a long time called IDK. And I think one of the things that I was thinking about is we are very much out of practice with putting ourselves in situations where we are uncomfortable, but are also learning. And I'm going to start making tools that will force people to do that of their own accord, right? So I don't, I don't know when that's going to finally be printed. It's at the printers now, but um, it, it'll, it'll be out soonish, I hope. Good on you. And it's so funny that because I, I think I heard it, I heard you bring it up in, in Chris's interview that you did with him as well, Chris Spear. Yeah. And uh, it's incredibly validating when what you're working on has these like real world questions that come up where you're like, I need this thing. I need this yeah. thing. And then you're like, oh, that's a, that's a product that I'm working on. Uh, so yeah. I, can, I mean, uh, I, I, us, the whole world's I, excited for that, that deck of cards to come out. I'm not sure the whole world is excited. But <laughs> I, I'd, be, I'd be very happy if a few people were excited enough. There you by go. It. So we'll, we'll see what happens. So second question from Jordan is a little bit more tactical. That was a mm -hmm. little bit more big picture psychological. Do you notice any commonalities between the R&D chefs and kitchens that you visited in terms of methods of staying organized and productive? I'm curious if there was common practices in place, such as standard formats for recording notes and presenting results to others, tracking progress, record keeping, and efficient communication between team members. Yeah, um, really, really good tactical question. So I think, well, a few things immediately come to mind. One of them is almost all of the good chefs that were R&D chefs took notes aggressively, right? So they, they were not the kind of people who are like, I'm just going to try something out. I'm not going to like note it down. Um, so that's just like default across everyone. But I think this is not unusual. Like lots of, lots of cooks will have the notebook and, and they'll do it. I think what sets them apart is how almost instinctive it was to make note of even what appeared to be really trivial details. Because in the end, what will make the difference between success and failure is a trivial detail. So that's one thing. Um, in terms of what they did that made them effective, I think that we need to separate between people who are experienced R&D chefs and people who are learning to become experienced R&D chefs. Experienced R&D chefs, I don't know if you've ever had this experience or whether your listeners have ever had this experience where you try and do something and a very experienced chef who is guiding you doesn't just tell you what whether or not you succeeded, but tells you how to succeed. Like, this was bad. You should do it this way instead. So I know it sounds like that's the right way to do it, but for an R&D chef, it's actually the wrong way to do it. The right way to do it is to say, this did not work the way it needs to work. And... I want you to do it differently so that it does the following thing, right? Not this is how you change it. It's that I want you to achieve 
you got the wrong outcome. I'm going to tell you what the correct outcome is. You go figure out how to get to that correct outcome. So it's a really subtle difference. But if you think back or if your listeners think back to all the times when you really learned how to do something well, it wasn't because someone told you exactly what to do. It's that they told you how to know when you were successful so that you can then go off and figure out what you needed to do based on all the ingredients or limitations that you're facing to get to that definition of success. And so the really good R&D chefs who are senior are good at not at resisting telling people how to do things and at getting very good at explaining what the desired result is. And in this way, they're actually very similar to very good military commanders, mm -hmm. right? Because what really good military commanders do is they realize if you're in a battlefield, you cannot simply say to all of your men, I want you to do the following, you know, 55 thing list of things because you can't predict what's going to happen. What you can do is you can tell them, this is the end result I want. Use your discretion and go get, get me this result, right? They, they call it command intent. Um, or, or in German, it's like Aufragstaktik. Um, and it's something which experienced and, and psychologically and emotionally secure commanders will do. And that's also what these experienced R&D chefs who are good will do. Now, what do good learning R&D chefs do? I think what's really interesting is really good R&D chefs who are developing into that space are really, really good at saying when they don't know something because... And, and, and I think this is also very counterintuitive and not just in the world of cooking. It's just counterintuitive everywhere because if you're a junior and you're trying to show that you're good, you always think the only way to show that I'm good is to not show that I don't know, right? Display and the competence. really good ones are always like, I have no idea what's going on. Help me learn, right? And it, it sounds really cliched and hackneyed, but it is genuinely true. They will not pretend that they know how to do something when they don't. They will be very, very open about not knowing something because again, what it does is it, encourages people to trust you more because when you say you know how to do something, you probably can be believed and it encourages them to help you learn. And that's really what you want. Yeah. So anyway, Seth Godin has this rant that he goes on where he talks about spec doing things to spec. And I think the thing that often gets missed prior to that is like, you have to define the spec. You know what I mean? When, when the spec is not defined, it's easy to say, oh, we'll just go off and do it better. You didn't do this right. But mm -hmm. if the work gets done prior to that, where it, the the juice from the peas needs to be bright green and seasoned in this way and whatever, Correct. that's the spec, yeah. you know? So then it's like, then yeah. you can, you know, do these little kind of like optimization tweaks to make it a more efficient process or to set up your station a little yeah. bit better or whatever. But if the spec is missing, it can be incredibly yeah. frustrating. And, and I think the problem with the problem that all R&D chefs will face is that by definition, if you're coming up with something new, there is no spec, right? And so, and, and I think this is where this idea of, by the way, this is where style comes back in, right? Because the really good R&D chefs are able to talk about when something is successful, even if there is not yet an exemplar of what that success is, right? Right. So how do you know if you are the R&D chef at, I don't know, the fat duck? that something is a fat ducky dish if the dish doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. The really good senior R&D chefs are able to communicate that successful outcome to the people on their team so that they get there. It's incredibly hard. This is why not all restaurants in the world are great, right? Very few of them are, are truly great. 
it's very it's really tough i'm gonna do some rapid fire questions they don't have to be rapid fire answers no worries is, is there a book that's been particularly impactful for you in your career cooking or not cooking or not um let me think about it. I really want to give a, a, a yeah, yeah, yeah. We can come back to it. Let, yeah, let's come. Let, back to let's it. come back to that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you mentioned that you cook at home. You're really into pizza right now. Can yes. be pizza related or not. The question is: Is there a technique you're still intimidated by in the kitchen? Uh, I'm not intimidated by the technique. I just know that I will fail at it, and I'm still failing with pizza. So the technique is. <laughs> using ingredients that are that are highly unstable so you know usually if you're making um pizza people love using like double zero flour right and it's roller milled it's highly processed so that every bag is more or less predictable um i've been using these population wheats that are different from harvest to harvest they're milled on stone mills so that from bag to bag they might be different they have weird enzymes in them well not they have weird enzymes. More of the enzymes that are always in wheat stay in them. And so the fermentation is like, you have to really learn how to deal with it. And that's, it's frustrating because often I, ju I just don't get the result that I want. But it's not, I, it's not intimidating because fa failure of this sort, it's like, it's so trivial. Like sure. at the worst, it's still edible. Right. If it's, if I'm very lucky, it's like delicious. And sometimes I get delicious, right? So yeah. Um, anyway, yes. So the, No, that's great. And I, and I think like, that's, it's such a fun, creative challenge where you like, that's the variable that you change. You know what I mean? Like the, the yes, recipe, the technique, sure. the final result looks the same, but you got there using this other kind of like ingredient. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. The picture I like to paint for this question is it's kind of like, it's a weekend morning or your, you know, your day off after a work week. How do you make your eggs for yourself? Oh, ah, this is a great question. So what I normally do is I have a I have a cast iron skillet that is, it's actually really it's much older than I am. It was given to me by the guy who rented me a wood, a wood shop years ago. It's actually a it's a it's a Griswold skillet that's over a hundred years old. Wow. I mean, it's not expensive. It's just, it's just it just happens to be really old, and it's one of the last. Um, it, it, Griswold was one of the last producers that would not just sand cast the the cast iron skillet, but they would sand it down so it's really smooth on the inside so I'll, I'll preheat that until it's like you know until it's really quite hot the light and frost effect you just flick some water at it dances over the top add some oil always oil i i don't especially like butter and then um two eggs beaten but not aerated and very very quickly just swirled around in the pan and then fold it over and then out right so it's colored on the outside but it ends up being like bavis on the inside. Sure. Um, and, you know, quite aggressively seasoned, both on the pan, in the oil, and also in the eggs. Um, but super fast. Like, it cooks in, I don't know, like, maybe a minute. Any other toast, vegetable, nope. garnish, just the eggs? That's great. No. I, I love it. I, I, also, I also wouldn't do this on a Saturday morning because I, I usually <laughs> only eat at night. But Got I it. would do this at night with eggs, and I, I often do it at night with eggs. Um, but yeah, no, not toast with this. This is just, it's quick. You just do it, and then you eat it, and then maybe you have toast after right. or something else. Right, right, right. Yeah. You somehow get a call right after this interview that you've just won an all-expenses-paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant. And when you get there, there's wow. someone you've always wanted to talk to waiting to have dinner with you. What is that restaurant, and who is that person? 
Ooh. Well, um, at this very moment, the restaurant I would really love to go back to eat at is one that I used to go to all the time, but now I'm not in London. I would love to go eat at 40 Maltby Street again. Who would I want to be eating with? That's a really interesting question. Can we come back to this one too? Totally. And I add the caveat if it makes it even more difficult for you to come up with an answer is that they can be living or dead, which always kind of gives some fun kind of like answers okay. there as well. Cool. Yeah. What's one thing that you've changed your mind on in recent memory? One thing that I've changed my mind on. So I used to think that, so I, I came out of like tech. I used to work at Google and I used to think that you really had to be a big rich company to be able to do like real innovation. And I think in the last like decade or so, I have completely changed my mind about that. I actually think that if you're a big rich company, what you do is you do things that everyone will say is new and innovative. And it's because you have so much money and market power and all that, that you are able to do that. Where the really cool innovation is happening is individual people are doing new things with the way they live their lives, the, the kinds of products that they're doing, their careers, whatever. And small companies, I mean, including small restaurants, are doing new things that are really risky for them because they have so much to lose and they don't have that many resources, right? So, you know, to, to answer your question directly, I think I've changed my mind about who gets to do innovation. And I think more importantly, I've changed my mind about what innovation actually is as well. I don't think it's just tech. I think it can be innovation at a business model level. It can be how you organize. It can be about products. It can be about services. It can be about processes. But I think the most important thing about innovation is that often the best kinds of innovation are people who are thinking about a new way of defining what is worth doing, right? So, you know, you can take the example, like before, I guess, before like the early 2000s, nobody made a really big deal about sourcing locally. They did it by default, right? And they might even value it, but they didn't make that part of the way they built their identity as a restaurant. Sure. And that's what I'm talking about, like thinking about what you're going to make into the thing that people know you for. That's your idea of quality. Many people will just take somebody else's idea of quality for their own. And the really good innovations are the ones that decide for themselves what that idea of quality is. That's great. You have two questions I'm coming back to, and this is the last. Okay. I have I have a couple I, I have a couple more I can slot in if you need a little bit more time. But the the, uh -huh. the one that's kind of like one of my uh, closers is, what do you think chefs can be doing better to help the next generation? And you might have already alluded to this in previous answers, but if there is something the next that comes generation to, of chefs, the next generation of chefs, what can what can the current yeah. lineage be doing better to help the next generation? Um, well, I, I think that there's there's a whole bunch of things, but the, the three that come top of mind are experienced chefs can open restaurants that are not all about innovation. And, and many people are already doing this, but they can make a bigger deal that that's what they're trying to do. Um, and they can emphasize, you know, this idea of guest and chef driven restaurants rather than either or restaurants, they can build them and hire people to work in them so that they learn that this is a viable business model. So that's one thing. I think another thing that chefs can definitely do to help the next generation is they can share their business models with everyone, right? So that it becomes really clear what kinds of restaurants make money and which ones don't. Um, and I think the third thing is 
and this is actually already happening. If you are senior and you have power in the industry, I think one of the things that you could do is you could start to talk about things that are very personal about how the industry works, which you've alluded to as well, um, which are things like this default of being kind of like, I mean, it, it is a very alpha male industry, right? So not everyone who has become successful in an alpha male industry likes it or even thinks it's good. And more and more people are, are talking about that. But still, not that many people are talking about it. Um, more people who don't think it's good and don't like it should talk about why it's bad. And I think if you are successful in running a kitchen or a restaurant that isn't a type A restaurant, you should be aggressively talking about how you do it because you'll be doing it totally differently from everyone else. So both of those, those last two points were very much so, at least from how I perceive those answers, like taking a little bit from the open source mentality of tech and software where it's like, share yeah. what you're building, share what's working, share what's not, yep. let other people yes. adopt it, play around with it for themselves, insert it into yep. their project. And then every, the whole, the whole thing rises, right? hundred percent. And I think the, the reason why I emphasize so much talking about how you do it, especially if you are not a type A chef, is because chances are really high that you have failed along the way to get to the point where you made it work. And this goes to what we were talking about, you know, 40 minutes ago, which is when you see a chef who is successful, you always think that they got there because they knew where they were going from the very beginning and they knew how to do it. But invariably, this was not the case, right? You know, I, I mean, we all know chefs who started out as type A and then they realized that, no, this is not for me. And then they had to figure out how to like change the way they run their business, change the way they, they work as leaders to make it work a different way. They should talk about it. Very, very few people talk about that. Right. So it's not just open sourcing the outcome so that people have the thing to include in what they want to build. It's also open sourcing the path that they got there so that you dispel the myth that there is a clear road that people knew about from the very beginning to get to this point that everybody wants to get to. It's almost like the, uh, by doing that, you also have just struck another vote in the develop a style column because i think what pre oh, has prevented a lot of people previously to, to this point in time from doing that is like my business model is my competitive advantage the you know xyz system that i input is the thing that's the thing if i tell people how i do that i mean like growing yeah. up watching food network shows you'd go yes. into a diner and they wouldn't tell you how they do their whatever Correct. like by having a style no one's going to do that business model with your style. Your style is inherent to you. And so- 100%. Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%. Fascinating. I mean, most of the things that are, you know, the way you run restaurants, I mean, if you keep them secret, maybe it will prevent other people from doing that, but that's not actually what makes your restaurant successful, right? What makes your restaurant successful is the experience of going there as the guest and having an experience of hospitality and of food that is distinctive to that place and if you happen to be doing it in a way that is respectful to staff, respectful to producers, and also makes money, why not show other people how to do those other three things? Because that and that really is how you help the next generation of chefs. Because otherwise, what, you, what you're getting is transmission of toxic culture, really bad business models that don't make a lot of money. And also, and this is really important and goes back to something we were talking about at the beginning, this weird obsession with just coming up with new things all the time that doesn't even produce very happy staff or very good food. All right. Coming back to those questions. 
book yeah, for sure. and yeah. meal. So the book, um, there's a book called The Timeless Way of Building. Okay. And it's by a guy called Christopher Alexander. Um, and it's weird because in some ways I think of this book as influencing how I think about a lot of things, including how you build businesses. Okay. And I am going to do a very bad summary because this book is really unsummarizable, but it's a book by an architect who was a very strange architect. Um, he did not believe that the guy who designs a building should design the whole thing in the way that modern architects do. What he believed was that you should design a building that really understands who will use it and what resources and constraints exist in the environment as you're building it. And that also breaks where it doesn't work and is repaired to work better among many other things. Sure. And I kind of think of how you think about businesses as and this goes again to something that you mentioned before. We often think you need to build the business so that it's completely correct from the beginning. It'll run as it's meant to run and you don't have to change it. Instead, if you think about it as something like an old farmhouse that you built because at that time you needed this thing and you had these rocks and you had these roof tiles and you build that farmhouse and then over time, you know, you need to put on another like milking barn or something. And over time, you need to put a door in this place because you need to like move goods in and out. You just do that. And what eventually shows up is more successful than if you just said, no, I had this idea at the beginning. I'm not going to change it. Um, and I think that applies not just to businesses, but also to um, who we are as people. Because if you have an idea when you're like, I don't know, 18 about who you want to be when you're 50. I mean, are you that smart at 18? I don't know. I, I wasn't. No. Um, Not even close. But if you are willing to make changes along the way based on what you face and change uh, who you are, uh, you're more likely to be successful along the way and more happy, I think. So you, it's a great book. Christopher well, you, Alexander. Share, you, you share it a little bit in your book where you talk about like open-ended goals a little bit. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. And your dining companion, who's eating with dining you? Dining companion. Oh, gosh. Um, this, one, this one is especially hard. There's so many people I, I would love to. It can be a four top. Uh, can be a four top. Four I don't think top. anybody's answered a four top, <laughs> but if you have to give your, <laughs> um, that's very, very interesting indeed. This is practically impossible. Yep. Um, okay. So I think I would love to have dinner with Christopher Alexander, who wrote the timeless way of building, um, an artist called Robert Irwin. Okay. Who I love, who also, I mean, a big part of his life is making art where in every kind of phase of his artistic career, he completely threw away the method because he was trying to pursue a clearer way of getting to the outcome that he was trying to aim for. Um, I'm momentarily blanking on the name of this author, but hmm. uh, he wrote a book called uh, The One Straw Revolution. Okay. What is his name? The Holy one... shit. Okay, well, it, it'll, it'll either come to me or I'll, or I'll look it up. Um, and that's our fourth top. Let me, I'm, I'm going to look it up so that people, the one straw <laughs> revolution. Uh, yeah. Masanobu Fu Fukuoka. Yeah, Fukuoka, right. yeah. Yes. I can't, I can't imagine how I forgot his name, but he also, I mean, he has a very interesting approach to thinking about farming. Got it. That is very much about not having a fixed idea of what it is that you're trying to grow and how you're trying to grow it, but instead responding to the situation, right? Love it. Yeah, that would be a super fun dinner <laughs> at Ford Coffee Street. That'd be amazing. Fun times. Think, things things you think about. Well, this has been 
incredibly inspiring and very very insightful um everything for the for the for the book for your site for everything is linked down below vaughn is there anything that we didn't cover or anything that you want to make sure that you leave people with before we drop no uh, i i think you actually asked like a whole bunch of questions that i always wish people would ask i think <laughs> if i wanted to leave people with a thing it would be that we generally seem to think that we need to take really big steps, but actually the way to do new things and try things that may fail is to take really small ones, but take many, many of them, right? So that way you limit your downside risk, but you also give yourself many opportunities to learn. And that's something which we don't talk about enough. I'll actually leave it as a challenge. Either if you're watching this on YouTube, leave down low in the comments some risks you're going to take this week or tweet at Vaughn and I and our yeah, links are going to be down below. Not just risks, Justin, not just risks, right? Because risks are things where you know all the possible outcomes and how likely they are. What about some things where you simply don't know what could happen or how likely they are or even whether or not you'll like it? Boom. Vaughn Tan, everybody. Thanks for being on the show, man. <laughs> Thanks for having me. What's up? Justin here again, because, I mean, if you're still listening, you didn't not like this episode, right? And if that's the case, I'd like to think that you'd get value from the other work that I share here online. It's all focused on helping chefs and hospitality professionals perform better. If you don't have a lot of time, the best place to start is with the email newsletter that I write every single week called the 80-20 Edge. That's where I share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. And I say it saves time because I include all of the content that I published that week all in one place as kind of a weekly digest of sorts. Next up, you should check out my YouTube channel for gear reviews, clips from podcasts just like this one, and documented experiences from some of the best restaurants in the world. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about my intense cohort-based professional development focused course, get coaching from me to help you make your next move, or just support the show, you can check out justinconnor.com support. And if you do support this show already, that's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Finally, it really does help to share a review of this show on Apple Podcasts to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. And until the next episode, my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.